Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, April the 13th, 2023. It's early afternoon in San Francisco, just after lunch. I haven't had lunch. So I'm a little hungry, and as it happens, we're doing a food show. We haven't done that many food shows. Uh, we did one a couple of years ago with Benjamin Law, who has an interesting book out on the secret life of groceries. And we've talked a lot about the politics of food. Did a show last year with the very influential uh, environmental law uh, uh, journalist George Mombiet. A uh, very good show. Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, which is a plea to rethink agriculture. And we even did a show uh, in December with an investigative journalist, Chloe Sovino, on what she calls the multi-trillion dollar industrial meat complex. Her book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed and the Fight for the Future of Meat, um, is a very interesting read. So it's kind of appropriate that we are looking at the other side of things with my guest today, Matt Moore. He's one of America's best-known writers on food, particularly on meat. Some of you will be familiar with uh, some of his best-selling books, including South's Best Butts and Cereal Griller. And he has a new book out, Butcher on the Block, which is just out uh, next month. So Matt, how would you, before we get into the details of your book, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Sovino book, but how would you respond to people who are critical of the industrial complex of American meat industry, of, of, of its cruelty to, um, to animals and its general bad practices? Is there some truth to that or you think it's uh, inaccurate? Well, you know, I think for me, this is a book... Um, First and foremost, the first line of the book is it's it's not a book about butchering per se. It's it's about the butcher, and so it's really my job to present uh, a cross section of butchers. Um, you know, not only in the United States, but we also travel to the south of France as well. And I think there's a really great quote that came from um, James Peisker, who owns uh, a Porter Road butcher, which is actually in my hometown of Nashville, and. I quoted him. He said, I, I'm a butcher and, and I'm even actually telling you to eat less meat. So I do think that there's some agreeance there that, you know, we're probably typically over consuming maybe even the wrong types of meat. You know, they've taken it so strongly that they basically have created vertical integration, starting with the farmer and their farms all the way to the processing and then ultimately into the butcher shop. So I, I think there is some some alignment, certainly with um, with those theories. But at the end of the day, really, my job is, is to kind of stay out of the politics and, and present you the people. Yeah, the, the art of butchering is increasingly, unfortunately, in America is a lost art. I grew up in London where there was a butcher shop and a fishmonger on every corner. There seem to be fewer of them these days. I know you divide your life between the United States. You're talking to me from Nashville at the moment. But you also have uh, a business in the south of France. You live near the lovely uh, town of Graz, uh, just just uh, north of, of Nice on the coast. Um, have the Europeans, uh, are they, is Europe the continent where one can discover 
the art of, of the butcher more than in the United States? Have we in the United States lost it? You know, I think there's a renaissance kind of on, on all sides, and it's going to depend on who you talk to. Um, you know, this was a book coming off of um, the South's Best Butts where we focus solely on everything that happened really good, low and slow, right? This idea of, of barbecue and going out and profiling pitmasters and traveling the barbecue belt. And the next idea was to kind of flip it on its head and, and, and do everything that happened hot and fast and cereal griller. So live fire grilling um, and, and talking about science and the Maillard reaction. And so I had some time, honestly, between those two, those two titles to really think about what would be next. Um, and of course, Serial Griller came out during the time of the pandemic, um, and we saw really an increased focus uh, of people really wanting to rely on that local butcher of being able to source, you know, items, especially when things became scarce. And as I started kind of brainstorming for uh, what would be the next title, it was important for me to kind of go back to my roots, um, and we can dig into it, but my grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, um, yeah, that's it, why I was. That was my next question. You beat me well, to it, Matt. I, so I know you're the, the grandson and the great grandson of Butcher. So tell me a little bit about your your grandfather and your great grandfather. Yeah, so I never had the opportunity to meet my great grandfather, um, but uh, that part of the world um, or family side from my mom's side came over from from Beirut and uh, started in the early 1920s. Spent some time in France, um, but ultimately settled in in Tennessee and then made their way southward to Valdosta, Georgia, uh, where you find a lot of Lebanese immigrants there. So my grandfather was was really uh, the first generation born um, in Valdosta, Georgia, and uh, ultimately took up the same trade of his father after serving some time in, in World War II. And so he, he carried on that legacy. And I, I think really what you saw is, is the advent of the American butcher shop he was really part of that that local butcher shop, but kind of grew it into what we now know today is is sort of more of a boutique style supermarket, um, which ultimately kind of fell by the way of the mass market that I think is becoming less popular um, in America. And so to kind of revisit your question, my travels of, of being in Europe allowed me the chance to kind of witness the butcher shop maybe of the of the 40s and 50s here in America. And probably the best kept secret, especially in France, is that the, the plat du jour is, is always the best meal. You know, the French don't eat a lot of takeout and fast food, but they will stop at the local butcher and they'll pick up that, that dish of the day. And so I started to see that trend happening in America. And that's kind of what allowed me to decide Butcher on the Block would be a book that would allow me to express different trends. Some are rising, maybe some are falling. Uh, but also be able to, to not be bound by like a cooking method of barbecue or a cooking method of grilling. It opened up the whole world to me of barbecue, grilling, raw, roasted, fried. And then there's other trends beyond just meat. We have game. Um, I might argue that there's, you know, seafood included. And then, yeah, you've got, uh, you've got some stuff in the book on uh, Red's Best in Boston, the seafood uh, emporium. And then also San Francisco, the vegetable butchering as well. Tell me a little bit about that. In San Francisco, where I'm talking to you from, Matt, um, there is a renaissance of boutique butchers, although they're incredibly expensive. They're prohibitively expensive for anyone who isn't a tech billionaire. Uh, I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. I guess it's better to have butchers. But um, the, 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 the high end doesn't scale very well, at least in terms of price, does it? Yeah, you know, that's why we focus in the book a, a pretty diverse cast of characters from 
um, high end, you know, uh, very long dry age processed uh, organic farming, those types of, of things that you might be you know, typically finding more in the city, all the way down to my local supermarket, the local Kroger here. Right. I know um, you write about Kroger and you suggest that you have a local butcher there is a pretty good guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, it's, it's about the personality. You know, some people might argue maybe with the quality, but at the end of the day, uh, that doesn't take away from the fact that there's some really great folks that are that are servicing the community and the market. There. I have places like I, I haven't I don't shop at Kroger, but at Whole Foods or at Safeway, there usually are meat markets, but one doesn't usually see the butcher. The butchers at the back is like the undertaker. You don't actually see them. Do you think there needs to be more visibility for butchers in places like Whole Foods and Safeway? I think you see that visibility in more of the locally owned, you know, butcher shops. Um, my grandfather, when I was interviewing my uncle, one of the fondest memories he had was was still getting the sides of beef from the old armor truck delivered to the store on a weekly basis, and watching my grandfather break down the entire side. You know, I, I think in the grocery store market, um, I, I don't know the specifics of Whole Foods and Safeway, but probably the the likelihood of them receiving a side, much less even a quarter. Is probably non-existent. It's it's being mostly butchered um, off-site. Now there's some some custom fabrication that's taking place, but that's just the reality of those those larger entities, and that is what causes folks maybe to source a local butcher because they're working you know with more boutique cuts, typically whole animal. Uh, we also see folks that will purchase a whole a whole animal themselves and maybe go in with the family. Uh, when we went to Cambridge City, Indiana, more of a Midwestern stop. You know, people are buying uh, a certain cow maybe a year in advance and then relying on the family there to actually butcher that down and, and eat off of that one animal throughout the entire year. Yeah, I wonder if the butcher business, for better or worse, has been sanitized so people simply are not willing to watch um, the food on their table being killed or even acknowledge that it, it once was alive. Do Interesting. Think, I, I yeah, gotta, I mean, for better or worse... I know um, I've got some relatives in the South who were avid hunters, and they always argued that it was healthy for everyone to go out on a shoot, kill a deer or kill a bird, and then take its carcass and cook it. And that was more honest and ultimately much healthier too. I don't know how you feel about that. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, and honestly, one of the stops we made is, I think every book I've done, I have to go to New Orleans. Um, mm. I just think it's such a fascinating place. And um, Yeah, I was just there last year. Yeah, and so we went to Piece of Meat Butcher. Uh, great name for a, a butcher shop. But um, you've got some some folks that trained under under Donald Link um, at Couchon and, and started their own butcher shop. But actually what they're doing is that they will actually serve you lunch. And then in, in the middle of the floor, they're actually breaking down a whole hog. So, you know, I think people, maybe trends are changing that people might want to know a little bit more of the source of the food. Again, it depends on the personality, but there is a pretty wide spectrum of, of folks having, you know, I think just more interest in the source of the food um, and the quality of that as well. I know you also talk about um, the Hing Lung Company, uh, otherwise known as the Go Duck Yourself. It's, a, it's a, a restaurant in San Francisco. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, it's really a it's really a, a butcher shop in San Fran. Um, yeah, know, in Chinatown, where not too far from where I live, I've actually walked past it. Uh, you got to stop in. Uh, again, family owned, and an incredible story uh, of a father that had worked there and then took over ownership. 
and two brothers, Eric and Simon, uh, run the, the butcher shop now. And I think what you see a lot in Chinatown, you know, we're so blessed to live here in this country where there's so much diversity in cuisines and people because really America is this experiment that everyone came from somewhere else. Um, and Chinatown is one of my favorite places to go explore. And after having come from uh, traveling the entire barbecue belt, which is primarily made up in the, in the South, um, you know, whole roasted hogs always fascinates me. And that mantra of low and slow is typically what yields incredible results. But their method was absolutely fascinating. I mean, they're taking 120 to 140 um, dressed hog and basically deboning the entire animal um, and then using a, a, a myriad of rubs and spices. They, they hang it vertically instead of offset. And then instead of cooking it maybe 200 degrees for 20 hours, they're cooking with, with pressure in a vertical smoker and, and they're pulling out this really crispy skin, just delicious meat in about an hour and a half. And you see the line that snarls all the way down Stockton and up Broadway uh, of folks young and old that are waiting for those cuts. And uh, I, I think they're carrying on a lot of tradition. Obviously the go duck yourself uh, is a little bit of play on words. It's, it's Eric's idea of maybe creating the next uh, fast food empire, but you're getting quality fabrication the old school Chinatown cuts that you'd expect from the butcher that the grandma's going to buy. And then you've got kind of two young rock star looking esque, you know, brothers that are also running a restaurant out of the back that I might argue is some of the best fat food in, in the city. And that's, that's a tall order because it's a great city. I knew I shouldn't have done this show, Matt, before lunch or certainly before eating because my mind is now on food rather than you, but let's continue. Um, <laughs> The book is about um, recipes and also butchers. I mean, how important is the cooking? I mean, if you get a great cut of meat, man, if you find a good butcher, some people say you can't really ruin it. You just throw it on the grill and you'll smell it when it's ready. Uh, are you suggesting that in butcher on the block or is the cooking itself central as well? Yeah, you know, there's an old saying that a meal is only as good as your ingredients, right? So if we start with good ingredients, the intention of cooking is to to not mess them up, only to enhance them. Um, kind of like in the barbecue world, if you start with a pork shoulder um, and you spend time and temperature and smoke, I, I'm not going to throw a big sauce on it. I actually want to taste the meat and, and, and experience that, that result. I, I do think that you can forward certain things along. Um, with the quality ingredients that you're getting from the butcher. You know, in the south of France, um, one of the, the immediate requests that I had was, of course, the, the steak tartare. And, you know, they're using maybe a little bit of a different cut than what we typically see here in the United States, but it's all about fresh presentation. And it's kind of that a la minute preparation that's so key and vital um, to pulling off that dish, where at the same time, you know, larger cuts, um, steaks in particular, we offer a couple different methods for pulling those off. You know, folks are obsessed these days with the reverse sphere, uh, sear or sous vide. Um, I even kind of present a new technique called new vide for, for those that are cooking at home. Uh, but it's not all just about the meat. Um, you know, of course, at the same time, uh, we have a chapter on the vegetable butcher where we're, we're using cooking techniques. What is, uh, what is a cooking butcher, Matt? A cooking butcher or a vegetable uh, Sorry, butcher? a cooking uh, a vegetable butcher. Yeah, so um, you're familiar with Italy and, and New York, and, and obviously it's grown yeah. as well. But um, Cara Mangini is, is really, she was the first vegetable butcher uh, that they had placed into Italy. 
So it was a concept that they had started um, around the fact that people were, were maybe not expressing or, or eating enough vegetables simply due to the fact that they just didn't know what to do with them. And so Kara had trained formally as a chef um, and then kind of went out to kind of create this idea that um, it's not just vegetables being the only thing on the plate, but they can take up more of your plate. And so her, her years in Italy as, as, as a vegetable butcher, truly folks might bring her a, a cantaloupe to a cauliflower to a kohlrabi, and she would, in front of them, kind of show them how that could be prepped so that they could take it home and cook later that evening. That concept spawned um, as she met her husband and, and moved to Ohio, and she ran a, uh, a restaurant there for many years. And then when our, I, I met up with her, she was actually um, in the Cow Hollow neighborhood of, of San Francisco in an old family home. And, and believe it or not, her Italian grandfather had moved. Uh, he was a butcher in the city as well. So I, I think it's a beautiful journey of, of following her path. And she's she's opening up kind of another idea. Um, again, my job is to present a lot of different people and a lot of different techniques. Um, and I think vegetable butchering is a thing. And I think it has a, a, a strong part and a strong focus throughout the work. You mentioned steak tartare in the south of France. And you also mentioned that you're of Lebanese origin, your grandfather and great grandfather. Uh, tell me a little bit about Kibe Naye. Uh, I know you mentioned that, which seems to be the, if, if, if I'm not wrong, the, the Lebanese version of steak tartare. Yeah, it's kind of like the gumbo to Louisiana or barbecue to the American South. Kibbe Naya is, is sort of that family recipe that not a holiday goes by where you, you don't find that. And when I meet other folks here that are, are Lebanese, uh, we, we typically argue about the method and the make. Um, but it is um, a really fantastic and, and favorite dish. It's something that I always uh, celebrate and cook throughout the year. But we're taking typically a very, very lean cut, like a sirloin cut and trimming away basically all of the fat. Um, it is a tougher cut. So oftentimes, you know, I remember as a kid when, when my mom would go source that, she didn't have a meat grinder in house. And we would go to the butcher very early in the morning and we would ask to, to put that and grind that first thing. And you would always grind it three times to help create a little bit of tenderness on it. Nowadays, I have a, a meat grinder that I like to use at home and I maybe have a cold beverage. It's very ceremonial for me, but you take that and you, you mix it with um, some, some raw onion and some bulgur wheat, and it is served raw, um, some spice and um, just salt and pepper. Typically, we serve it with maybe kind of a Syrian-style bread, but it's just a delicious tartar style. And then, of course, once you're done with that, then we move on to other forms of kibbe. Um, we, we present a, a baked kibbe. Sometimes you find it fried. Uh, there's a mixture of ground beef and pine nuts that we typically refer to as hashwi, which sometimes finds its way into the stuffing. But for me, it's all comfort food. Um, a lot of times maybe friends are a little averse to trying it, but once they taste it and they get it, it's one of those dishes where you just kind of shake your head and it all makes sense. What are your favorite Lebanese restaurants in the U.S.? You obviously travel around. I don't know one in San Francisco. I'm sure there are some good ones. And there's some know, good uh, Greek ones. Oh, yeah. Uh, my favorite in the U.S. is Alili in New York City. Um, because when I go there, I don't have to do all of the work because Lebanese cooking is is quite hands-on. Um, I think back to my grandmother in the kitchen and all the work she would do just for a, a meat pie or something along those lines. But when I go to Alili in New York, um, it just has that flavor that's so similar to what I grew up with. Um, I'm really fortunate here, too. We have a, a, a beautiful restaurant um, in the 12th South neighborhood of Nashville called Epice. Obviously, there's a lot of French influence in, in Lebanese culture. 
and their family has a little bit different structure in, in terms of spices. But, you know, one day I walked in and I asked why they didn't have Kibbe and I on the menu. And, and he looked at me and he said, come back tomorrow and I'll make it for you. So I think that that's kind of a sign of, of respect amongst the culture. Well, your book is, of course, about meat and butchers rather than wine. But is it possible to have a good meat dinner, meat meal, Matt, without wine? Uh, I am I'm someone who certainly loves uh, any wine. I, I don't think I've met one that I don't like. So uh, you're you're asking the, the right my, my, my point is is if you want an argument for wine, it's as if meat was created for wine or vice versa. I mean, you can argue that you don't want to drink a glass of wine with ice cream or perhaps with vegetables. Uh, but certainly with meat, it seems to me to be a quality meat seems essential. It's not possible to, for example, eat a good steak without a nice glass of wine. I won't argue with, with you on that one. Do you cover that in Butcher on the Block or, or is that I mean, there are so many books, of course, on wine. Yeah, no, really, for me, the, the concept here is, is focusing on the butcher. It is sort of a slice of life. Um, I'm inviting you. You know, we travel. Uh, I fly a little 1976 Piper Cherokee to most of my destinations or commercial air by whatever means. Kind of want you on the right seat, part of the journey. Um, there's a little bit of historical about who the person is, where they've come from, but it's it's also kind of like a slice of life. Just the experience and, and the sights and the sounds and the smells and the taste that I'm getting on a daily basis. So that's really the focus of the work. You know, I, I want to be able to present kind of a Saturday morning coffee read that you could say, hey, that's something that I want to pick up. I want to go to New Orleans this morning and you can read the vignette on on the folks at Piece of Meat and then maybe later that afternoon try that dish. But at the same time, I want it to be a weeknight book, too. You know, I want to be able to present dishes or ideas or themes that you can pull off for either a solo or family meal um, within 30 minutes. And of course, probably enjoy a glass of wine with that as well. Matt, these are good times for food writers like yourself, food entrepreneurs, I guess. Why do you think... um, the reading public, uh, and more broadly, more and more people are, if not obsessed with food, certainly more interested in it than they've ever been. You know, for me, I, I feel like there's a big responsibility to, to showcase the people and the right here and now. You know, we, we do live in this world where I, I think there's been a lot of attention and structure and, and obviously increase in food due to uh, the digital platforms that are out there, obviously the internet and, and Instagram. Yeah, you can't eat the internet, can you, Matt? What's that? You can't eat the can't internet. Eat no. the internet. You know, and um, I'm guilty. You know, I'm someone that, that really tries to prefer to live in the moment. Um, and so for me, the, the, the act of still being able to write a book, you have this beautiful collection that's super well thought out. You know, I, I, in my recipes, I'm typically not someone who's going to ask you to go pick up one obscure spice that you're never going to use again. Whereas if you pick up something on TikTok, you, you may go buy it and you almost become frustrated because you made a $100 lasagna. Um, for me, there's just something really stoic and beautiful about a book. It's a stamp in time. It's a moment that lives right here and now. And, and I love that medium. And it's something that I really celebrate. And I'm, I'm super gracious that people are continuing to go out and buy books um, that's not a knock on the internet, but I do think it gives you a chance to kind of slow down and just approach these people and these stories and these places and this time, and then have a really well-tested, documented recipe. And there's no better compliment that I get 
then when somebody says, hey, I made the, the recipe for the, the Mississippi roast with the creamy grits in your book, but, 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 but you, you didn't add enough garlic. I added more garlic and I made it my own. I mean, to me, you're hopefully spreading this idea that the first question I say, who do you share it with, right? Is it your family? Is it the neighbor? Is it maybe a competitor, right? The, the idea that we should be cooking and sharing food. And that's really the, the broader mission that I'm on. Matt, is there anything beyond the pale for you? A lot of people are grossed out by kidneys, by brains. Fresh. The French love their sweet meats, and a lot of non-French people are not keen on that. Is there anything that you say to yourself, uh, I just couldn't eat that? Are you Anthony Bourdain and you eat anything that's put in no, front I, of you I, if it's good? I, I'm not a shock eater by any means, right? But I do think it's important to to taste and to try. Um, we explore a little bit of that with some, some sweet breads that we pick up out of Indiana, even a, a whole hogshead that we smoke to get the, the, the pulled meat here and, and make tacos. Um, and honestly, everyone was super excited to, to give that a try. So no, I'm not out seeking the bizarre foods, but um, if presented something, I think it's um, respectful. And I think it's typically something that where I've found, man, some of the best dishes I've had I've maybe not been really keen on on what it might be, um, but it's turned out to be fantastic. Yeah, I think it does justice. If we're going to kill an animal, we might as well eat every piece of it we can find. Sure. Finally, Matt, what about kids and meat? Uh, the book obviously is is probably more for grown up readers, but do you have any particular um, messages for parents and for children uh, who? should be learning to appreciate it rather than just being fed hamburgers, fast food hamburgers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a method that I put to practice every single day. I've, I've got two young daughters that are seven and five and you'll see some of their favorite recipes in there, including kind of an homage to uh, another Lebanese dish that I call princess rice because they're both princesses and it is a, a ground beef style dish that's, uh, cooked together kind of a Lebanese style dirty rice. But for me, I think, you know, what my kids see on a daily basis is that uh, in, in terms of meat consumption, um, you know, I'm often sourcing something every single day because I love the the markets and the butcher shops. And I think it's just fascinating to kind of uh, be able to, to ride my bike up to six or seven different stores that are close to me and find what looks good, conceptualize it, then execute it. And then, you know, we are a family where my kids, I'm sending them to school and um, it's not typically processed. It'll be, you know, maybe the, the roast beef from the night before on the sandwich and something along those lines. So I think just the idea that our household is a household that's a revolving door. It is neighbors, it's friends, it's strangers. They're here, they're invited for meals. And, and being part of that, I think, um, kind of expands their, their mindset to community and being hospitable and being generous, um, but also not being wasteful as well. I says one more question, Matt, that occurs to me. Um, talking of markets, what are your thoughts on wet markets? Of course, it was supposedly, or at least according to rumor, a wet market in China that spawned the, the, the COVID virus. Uh, speaking of San Francisco in Chinatown, there are still live animals in some of the stores there and some of the stalls. Do you think that um, wet markets are appropriate in the early part of the 21st century? And, 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 and might they actually be a reminder of the freshness of meat, the freshness of fish? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think tradition um, survives for good reason, right? And so 
one of the pleasures of being able to travel and see how different people um, interact with ingredients and food, it, it does broaden your horizons. I was in uh, Mexico City just a couple weeks ago and uh, being able to see kind of their interpretation of that that daily market. And you do see, you know, some live um, livestock or animals, but typically you're going to find it um, more on the seafood side as well. But I do think it's part of an experience. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on wet markets and the sanity and safety. Um, but I do think from an experiential standpoint, traveling, you know, things are done differently around the world. Um, and being able to be exposed to that, um, I do think can, can broaden your horizons.